The first scripture today comes from James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The second scripture is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 2 through 3, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, the Word of God. Good morning. I want to thank Chris for reminding me of Valentine's Day. <laughs> I actually forgot that one year. Also, pitchers and catchers report on Wednesday. I want to talk to you today. Excuse me if I sit here. I want to talk to you today about my least favorite verse in the entire Bible. In fact, I really wish it wasn't there. I refer, of course, to James chapter 1, verse 2, which says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, face trials of many kinds. I wish it said, Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> or as my Jamaican friends also say, Yaman, no problem. You know, Martin Luther didn't think that the book of James ought to be in the Bible, though for very different reasons. But if you remove James, it wouldn't help because Peter says the same thing. He says that in our salvation and in our great inheritance waiting for us in heaven, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And Paul says in Romans 5, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. So it's inescapable. All three apostles tell us to find joy in our suffering, in our grief, and in our trials. But let's be clear about what this means and what it does not mean. I suspect that when most people see the word trials, 
they think just simply something really hard or tragic or a stone in the road. The world would call this fate or an accident or something that just happens. There seems to be this American myth hard things ought not to happen. And if they do, something simply went wrong, and all we have to do is fix it so it won't happen again. The rest of the world doesn't think that way, probably because they don't live in the same relative peace and comfort that we live in. But someone has said, life is not a playground, it's a battlefield. And that's true. It seems to me that much of American culture wants to teach us that life is a playground, and we should be spending our time playing games and just having fun. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus made a promise that we might not like very much. He said, in this world you will have trouble. But he also said, do not be afraid, for I have overcome the world. Now, the word translated trials in both James and Peter is the Greek word parasmos. It means an experiment or a test. Tim Keller says the word means an attempt to learn the nature or character of something, a test. Now, I don't want to get into a theological discussion about the method or causation involved in trials. I think that they happen in many different ways and for many different reasons. But in all of them, the Word of God tells us that there is intent involved on the part of God. Nothing happens by accident or fate. That is what the world believes. It's not what the Bible teaches. James and Peter could easily have said, when you go through a crisis or a difficult time, but they didn't. They said, when you go through a trial or a test, when you are being tested. This doesn't mean that there aren't other things going on, of course. There probably are. But God is using these things as a test. It might not be the only thing he is doing. And Peter gives us this analogy that it's like putting gold ore into a furnace to melt off the dross so that what comes out is pure gold. You see the intent in that? It does not happen by accident, even if there are all kinds of complicated human causes and explanations involved. Also, it seems to be true that by the grace and mercy of God, many trials are relatively minimal. They're part of the great process of our lives. But some trials are like the fiery furnace that Peter describes. I believe that God uses different types of trials at different times for different purposes, but we can't sort all that out. It also should be noted that in his great mercy, God spares us from far more trials than he allows us to go through. Many times I've had near misses on the highway. I nearly drowned twice. Other times I've done stupid things, and God has spared me the consequences which should have come about because of them. His mercy is great, and no one should think that when he allows us to go through a trial, somehow his mercy disappeared. This also should not be thought of as some cold, logical, scholarly, or academic, or even worse, formulaic discussion. There's real suffering involved in trials, sometimes to a very great degree. Peter says when you suffer grief in all kinds of trials, you see, he has in mind not just some hard thing, but real grief, which is a terrible thing. A pastor by the name of Levi Lusco 
wrote a book about that is after the death of his five-year-old daughter. And he described it this way. When your heart is broken, you don't know where to go. Colors lose their brightness and the world seems so gray. The ground is unsteady and food tastes like ash. Your stomach flutters in a free fall that doesn't stop. Your fists ball up, but there's nothing to fight. A screaming, heavy, sinking panic rises in your chest. It can't be outrun, it won't be shut down, and it refuses to be put out. So in this following discussion, let's remember the reality of grief which is involved here. But let's also remember the wonderful promise most of us have memorized from Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now note also, and this is very important, that both apostles say, when you go through trials. They do not say, if you go through a trial. Trials are part of God's design for life. They have a purpose. To some extent, we can avoid trials by living wisely, but other trials happen despite anything we may have done or failed to do. God and God alone determines how and when they will come and what their extent will be. There is a sense in which we could say that all of life is one big test. In that sense, that's why we're here. Our lives are a necessary entrance examination, if you will, before our real life, which is yet to come. A number of years ago, I taught a college course just to see if I would like it. I didn't. (laughs) But I remember the care that I put into preparing the tests. Many of you are teachers, and you know what I mean. In elementary school, I think teachers just want right answers. But in college... I didn't want my students to tell me what I had said. I didn't want them to tell me what they read in a book. I wanted to know what they really, whether they really got it, whether they really saw the significance, the impact, and the meaning. How did it affect their knowledge? How did it affect them? Now, when I see the word trials, I cannot help but think of human trials in a courtroom because that has been my professional life for 40 years. I've been a trial advocate, spending much of my time in the courtroom presenting cases. And for 12 of those years, I had the privilege of serving as a substitute district court judge. So I know what a trial looks like, both from counsel table and from the bench. There are many important principles of trial advocacy, which I have learned over the years. How to try a case correctly and how to greatly increase my likelihood of winning the trial. It has occurred to me that some of these principles have direct spiritual equivalents, which might be helpful here. I hope that they will be, and I'd like to share a few of them. Before I do, though, I want to make sure that I emphasize that I'm not giving you a simple formula for success. Just do this, and you will win your trial. I think these things are important, but so are other things. A person going through a major trial may need medical intervention mental health care, or participate in grief counseling or a grief group or other things. We all need help. We all need encouragement, and no one can go it alone. So here's the first, 
principle of trial advocacy which I would like to give you. You win a trial by giving the judge what he or she is looking for, not by saying whatever it is you want to say. Let me explain. A lot of people think that judges have the freedom to do whatever they want to do, but that's not true. The General Assembly passes statutes, and the statutes mandate what a judge is required to consider when he makes a decision. They say, before you can rule, you must consider the following standards. There might be six or eight or ten or twelve, it doesn't matter, but the judge is required by law to rule after he's considered those standards. So when I was judging, I would always have a copy of that statute on the bench sitting in front of me. And every time I heard uh, one of the attorneys say something, or I listened to a witness say something, or a piece of uh, evidence was offered, I would be asking myself two things. Number one, is it relevant? And number two, is it persuasive? Does it tend to prove any of the things which I am required by law to consider? The way you win a trial is by looking at the same standards the judge is going to look at and carefully preparing your case so that you prove each of the elements of that case. Now, an inexperienced or foolish lawyer will have sat in his office with a client, and the client would have been highly emotional, and the client would have said things like this, it's not fair, it's not just, it's not right. My rights have been violated, I've been hurt, I'm suffering. So the lawyer gets in the courtroom, stands up in front of the judge, and says, it's not right, it's not fair, it's not just. My client's rights have been violated. He's been hurt. He's suffering. And the client is sitting there thinking, what a good lawyer. (laughs) He's telling that judge exactly what I want him to say. I can't think of a better way to lose a trial. (laughs) Because the whole time the judge is looking at these standards and saying, this isn't relevant to any of them. And it's not persuasive of anything. And as far as the suffering part goes, well... Everybody in a courtroom is suffering. (laughs) You wouldn't be there if you weren't suffering. So it's not exactly going to change the judge's mind to tell him that. Now, I know maybe a hundred judges personally, and with a couple of exceptions, most of them are very caring and compassionate people, but they have a job to do. So what's the spiritual equivalent of this? Well, what type of trial is it? What's the trial all about? It's not a secret. James and Peter both tell us what the trial is all about. It's about faith. God cares so much about our faith. How much exists, its extent, its pureness, its quality, that he may use even the fiery furnace to purify it. You know, there is such a thing as ugly faith. That is faith which is mixed up with all kinds of things that ought not to be there. And it is one reason why many people run from Christians rather than being drawn to us. God wants our faith to be pure, beautiful, and effective. One of the greatest compliments I ever received from a judge, and judges don't normally talk to lawyers after trial, and lawyers don't talk to judges, that's considered inappropriate, but 
on this one occasion, this judge, because she's a friend of mine, I guess, said this to me. She said, you gave me everything I needed to hear and nothing I did not need to hear. That was a very great compliment. Near the end of my career, I found found myself telling my clients before a big trial, there is only one opinion I care about in a courtroom, and it isn't yours. There's only one person I'm trying to convince, and it isn't your adversary. Now, I'm not suggesting that we ought not to pour out our hearts and our feelings to God. We should. Certainly, David and the other psalmists did so all the time. But we need to keep those things in perspective. We need to remember what the trial is all about. Now, I ask you, why is faith so important? Why is God our great judge who is loving, compassionate, and faithful willing to let us go through these things? Well... Faith is what is most important. Faith is how we access our salvation in Christ. Faith is how we obtain the many great promises and blessings of God. Faith honors and glorifies God. It's vastly more important than our circumstances. Faith is what our heavenly judge is looking for. And not just any faith, but a certain kind of faith. Faith with certain characteristics. Strong, focused pure, resilient, and beautiful. Faith in him, not diluted by being partially in someone or something else. He looks for those who are full of faith, the faithful. Martin Luther, who had a great deal to say about faith, wrote the following. Many people have considered Christian faith an easy thing, and not a few have given it a place among the virtues. They do this because they have not experienced it and have never tasted the great strength there is in faith. It is impossible to write well about it or to understand what has been written about it unless one has at one time or another experienced the courage which faith gives a man when trials oppress him. But he who has had even a faint taste of it can never write, speak, meditate, or hear enough concerning it. It is a living spring of water, welling up to eternal life, as Christ calls it. All right, second principle of trial advocacy. Recognize the weaknesses of your own case and be the one to bring them up. Don't ever allow your adversary to do so. Every case has weaknesses. You wouldn't be going through a trial if there weren't weaknesses. Cases which don't have weaknesses don't go to trial. So I made it my practice in my opening statement to make sure that I told the judge exactly what the weaknesses of my case were because then, of course, I could characterize them the way I chose to characterize them. But if you don't do that, then your adversary in his opening statement is sure to point out the weaknesses of your case and, ooh, he's going to make them sound awful. But if you've told the judge about them first then the judge is listening to your adversary and thinking, all right, I've already heard this. Go on, tell me something I haven't heard. You see, it has no force. It goes right past him. So it's critical that we acknowledge and explain the weaknesses of our case first. Well, what's the spiritual equivalent of that? 
Well, the weakness of our case is our sin. And that is what our adversary plans to use against us. He will accuse and manipulate and condemn. He will twist everything because that's what he does. That is his strategy. But if we've confessed to God and claimed the blood of Jesus, then the accusation has no force. It's already been heard. It's already been dealt with. Third principle of trial advocacy. Trial preparation is critically important. Form your theory of the case, make a plan, and stick to the plan. Now, any good trial advocate will tell you that it takes many more hours to prepare a case than it does to actually try a case. Trial preparation is a slow, tedious, methodical process, but it's absolutely critical to be ready for the trial when it begins. Now, I imagine that people in every walk of life have their own kinds of nightmares. I don't know what kind of nightmare an accountant has, for an example. Maybe he wakes up in a cold sweat and says, what if two and two don't really equal four? But I'll tell you what my greatest nightmare was. No, my second greatest nightmare. My greatest nightmare was the one where I realized I hadn't gone to math class in seventh grade. And they took away my high school diploma, my college diploma, and my law school diploma. But my second greatest nightmare was I found myself standing in a courtroom at the beginning of a trial, and I didn't know why I was there. I didn't know there was going to be a trial this day, and I didn't know what it was about. I didn't have anything to say. I didn't have any witnesses. I didn't have any evidence to present. And the judge is looking at me, and the other lawyer is looking at me, and I don't know what to say. I didn't know there was going to be a trial today. Well, you see, the spiritual equivalent, of course, is you don't know when a trial is going to come. They're unexpected, but they will come. We're promised that. And you have to prepare for them in advance. You cannot seek shelter when the storm is already upon you. So how do you prepare for the trials of life? Well, there's a number of ways, but let me give you four. First, diligent, careful, and methodical Bible study. You know, it's, it's fine to read a little devotional every day, but I mean serious Bible study. I mean really knowing the Word of God so that you're able to use it as Christ did when he was tempted, or as Paul said, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That means you got to have a plan. You have to study the Bible in a systematic, methodical way so you know the Word of God and you're able to use it. Second method of trial preparation is daily worship, meditation, and prayer. Your personal relationship with God is your lifeline. Don't let it be cut. You have to maintain that relationship at all costs. Third, listening to teaching and preaching from those who know more than you do. In every age, we've been blessed with godly men and women who know a lot and have a lot to say. Listen to them. Learn. Pay attention to what they have to say. And lastly, 
Meaningful and regular fellowship with other believers and commitment to a church body like this one. You cannot begin to form relationships when the storm breaks. They have to be formed well in advance. I cannot tell you how critical it is to have a solid church body in relationships when a trial is suddenly upon you. All of these things and more are essential. It takes years for a tree to develop a root system strong enough to stand up against the storm. And most of this is private discipline, the sort of things that no one except your heavenly father and judge sees. Fourth principle of trial advocacy. Anticipate surprises, twists, and turns during the trial itself and be ready for them. How do you be ready for surprises, you ask? Well, by watching others and seeing what they do. I used to sit in a courtroom and watch experienced lawyers present their case. When they did something really well, I'd say, wow, well done. Let me make a note. I'm going to use that in the future. Or if they do something that doesn't work, ooh, make a note. Don't ever do that. <laughs> That's how you learn. You have lots of people, uh, more mature believers, that you can watch and see how they handle things when they go through trials. It's critically important because that's how you develop the ability to respond uh, when things happen. You've probably seen pictures of sword fighters, fencing. You know how you always are parrying the blow when the sword comes? It's not instinct. It's learned. A good fencer knows how to parry a blow when it comes, and he has to be taught how to do that. Okay, lastly, last principle of trial advocacy that I want to share with you. Do not respond to your opponent. Do not abandon your theory of the case. During a trial, your adversary will be throwing out accusations constantly, and they sound terrible. He'll be twisting and distorting the evidence and saying things which are simply not true. And everything in you wants to answer all of those. But if you respond to them, what have you done? You've done two things. First of all, you've put yourself on the defensive. Now you're fighting a defensive battle instead of an offensive battle. Secondly, you've sacrificed your theory of the case. Now you're letting the whole trial go forward on his theory of the case and not yours. So you have to let all those terrible-sounding things go right past you. Remember, that's not what the judge is looking at. The judge is looking at the standards, and you have to stick to your theory of the case, and you have to prove it. So what's your spiritual equivalent? Well, we have an adversary, and he's smarter than you are, and he knows all of your weaknesses. During the trial, he will constantly throw out accusations which just sound terrible. You'll hear things like this. It's all your fault. You're a failure. If you had done this or that, it would not have happened. You're worthless. Don't answer those accusations. Let them go right by and stick to your theory of the case and remember what the judge is looking for. What's your theory of the case? God is loving and merciful and faithful, and he's in total control. He has suffered and died on our behalf, and the penalty has already been paid for everything we've done or failed to do. In the eyes of the judge, the penalty has already been paid. 
So the accusations of the adversary are simply irrelevant. They don't have to be answered. We have a great and precious inheritance waiting for us in our true home, which is what we're heading for. The battle has already been won, and our adversary is going to wind up in a lake of fire. That's your theory of the case. That's what we believe. Stick to it. Don't let yourself be taken off of the offensive. Summary and conclusion. Trials will come to all of us because in the economy of God, this life is a test, among other things. It is a battlefield, not a playground. Our real life lies before us when we cross the River Jordan and enter the promised land through the gates of heaven. Our heavenly judge is trying our faith and molding it and shaping it. Sometimes he may let us go through a fiery furnace to refine us because he wants us to have a beautiful faith, not an ugly faith. Are we ready for trials? Do we know how to go through them? Also remember that these apostles speak a great deal about developing perseverance and character. That's what God wants to see in our faith. Now, when I've faced the greatest trials in my life, and I've been through the fiery furnace a few times, I found myself asking, okay, do I really believe this? Do I really? Do I believe that God knows what he is doing, that he's good and loving and faithful, that those who have harmed me have been forgiven in full if they've confessed and believed? That's the battle, the trial. Do I believe that it's already been won? Do I really believe this? Do I? And after a struggle, I say, yes. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Faith does not insulate us from pain. It does not prevent pain or remove pain but it does sustain us through the pain. It is possible to find joy in the midst of suffering, but only, only if our eyes are fixed upon Jesus and upon our great inheritance preserved in heaven for us. Peter says, set your hope upon the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's it. Set your hope. Focus Look towards the beautiful future that awaits all believers in Jesus. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller speaks of the story in John 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He points out, of course, what most of us remember, and that is that Jesus wept. That is that God himself felt the pain that his friends were going through so greatly And he had compassion for their sorrow upon sorrow, that he wept with them. Can you wrap your head around the fact that Jesus is weeping with you? In the story also of the raising of Lazarus, there's a phrase, which is translated in most English Bibles, he was troubled in spirit, or something like that. But it doesn't really mean that. It's as if the English translators were afraid of what it actually says, so they wanted to make it less offensive. They wanted to dumb it down for us. What it actually means is Jesus 
bellowed with anger. No gentle Jesus, meek and mild here. It is unfortunate that we have some of the translations we have. What was Jesus so angry at? Well, he was angry at death. He was angry at evil. He was angry at the evil one. He was angry at the pain caused by it, even though he allowed it. And then, when Jesus told them to roll the stone away, the ever-practical Martha objected that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, and by now there would be an odor. I can just visualize Jesus looking at her in the midst of her pain and saying, Martha, Martha. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Please join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for your blessings and for this message we just heard from our brother Bob. Thank you for what you have revealed to us today. Throughout the trials we face in life, we are thankful that you are with us wherever we go. We take comfort in knowing that the Bible tells us that the tested genuineness of our faith is more precious than gold. In the midst of these trials, Lord, it is not easy to say it is well with my soul, but we put our trust in you. We take comfort in the assurances that you, Lord, are near the brokenhearted. You told us, I have plans for you, plans for welfare and not evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. You have encouraged us that we should be steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. Help us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. Lord, we seek to serve you in humility. Help us to walk faithfully after Christ, reflecting his love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.